This is the Janet Killeen Books Podcast. I am reading from my collection of short stories, There is a Season. This story is called Spots of Time. Spots of Time There are, in our existence, spots of time which with distinct preeminence retain a vivifying virtue. William Wordsworth, The Prelude Before midday I did what I could hardly believe was possible. I left. Left the house, left the marriage, left the mugs and plates unwashed on the sink. The soiled clothes collapsed in the laundry basket. I rummaged in the cupboard under the stairs for the walking boots and rucksack hidden and unused for seven years, packed a minimum of underwear and pyjamas, a toothbrush and washing things, two blouses, trousers and a sweatshirt. I took a waterproof jacket, a few personal possessions and papers and my purse and left. My mobile sat on the kitchen table, and even as I paused it shrilled and flashed to summon me. I watched it, blinking to itself, unanswered. The kitchen door closed on its insistence. Then the front door latch clicked, and I pushed the keys through the letterbox. Whatever was to come, this act was final, conclusive, Exit. There were, thank God, no children, torn or terrified by this separation. I took the only way I knew, after dreaming, planning, lying awake through sweating sleepless nights next to him, shrinking from the bruises and the spittle of contempt. It took five years for me to speak the truth to myself about the death of love to come to know myself again, to dare to take those steps to leave the house and not return. I caught a bus, already looking behind constantly, lest the blue Vauxhall saloon crept up to the curb, even though I knew to a minute the time of his return each day, the slammed door, the awful uncertainty of his entry, charm that flashed in a second to rage. I took a seat away from the doors, hiding behind the bulk of a woman and her shopping. The bus jolted its way past familiar landmarks. The railway tavern, Tesco's, the garage, the newsagent, the betting shop. I trembled, marking each one down in my mind, until we turned away from the route I knew he took from work, and we drew further and further away from the possibility of seeing, though I barely knew them, a neighbour. Moving faster now in the bus lanes that led to the oval, I released my taut hands from the strap of the rucksack, resting it on my lap, but the shuddering did not cease. I had planned this route. If anyone had seen me, they would see me on the bus that goes to Victoria, but once there I would take the underground across and north and so come to King's Cross and the trains for Scotland. 
I took the Inverness train, fast to Edinburgh, scouring through countryside and then slowing to acknowledge the houses and factories that clutter the station areas of Peterborough, Newark, Doncaster, York, Newcastle. The names played an old rhythm in my mind, until and at last, far out to the east, glimpses of the coast, shining even in this grey light. Beyond Newcastle, Berwick, crossing that invisible magic border into Scotland. If I could believe the old stories, I would find the fugitive's refuge here, across a border into another country, another fiefdom. At Victoria, I had drawn out everything I could from my building society account. My personal savings book, hidden for years beneath the plastic box under the sink that held the oven cleaner, the floor and walls wondershine, the disinfectant. How bright each surface of our home. Retained enough. Money I had saved from my job. Money inherited from my aunt. Money intended in those halcyon days of engagement to be the extras for holidays, for the treats and luxuries of our marriage. I saw myself briefly smiling as I had dreamed of smiling, bringing my gifts to the table. Surprise! It took two months for me to realise that I must keep it hidden. Two years to learn to conceal the dread I felt as my life contracted, to disguise my terror of arousing violence, to learn the safety of compliance, to pretend to myself and all around that this was, as it appeared to be, a relationship of sunshine. Five years then to hear and recognise the voice that stirred in my inner ear in the sleepless hours, that spoke to me out of the silent mirror. Beyond Berwick, as the day dulled towards evening, I slept, my hands laced in the rucksack, my head tilted into the corner by the window. After Edinburgh, the train slows to become a local visitor, a gentle ambler along the valleys and gradients, stopping at small stations for shoppers and hikers, and the air changes, sharper, astringent, awakening. I stirred listening for the station names, got down at Newton Moor. It was dark, but not cold, and I could find a place to stay. Pubs and small hotels were used to hikers arriving late from the hills or from the train, and so it was easy to find a room overnight, and the chance to consider where tomorrow might lead. In the morning I would find maps and paths, known and unknown. Oh, where are you going? said Fira to Fairer. Away from fear, I answered myself. Even though the shivering of the sleepless dark took hold of me in the early hours, long before light came grey at the windows. From the road, as I remembered, the field opens to you with a clear path and distinct margins of hedge and ditch a known track here traced by my finger on the map, upward to the heights, across a plateau, and then a descent to the valley beyond. Gradient and contour clearly defined and recalled from long ago. As I looked up, rowan, birch and pine waited in the middle distance, 
and beyond them moor and rock reared, ragged with bracken and ling. Far off, mountains climbed the sky in colours of storm and shadow. At my feet as I began the walk, I saw with tentative delight I could still identify each level stratified with flowers, scabious and vetch at the field's edge, then the frail and shivering harebell as the path turns and steepens. Heather and breast-high bracken resisted me, snagging my feet as the contours tightened, and I walked among startling, thin, lichened birch trees grouped like giant acapes stalking on stilt-legs beneath the mountain. I had not walked like this since university days, and my legs felt heavy with the inactivity of years spent within the circuit of the house, the shops, the house. A strange and quickening adrenaline drove me beyond my strength, a desperate quest for the huge air above the vegetation, the spacious bare rock plateau, views of mountain heights that stretched beyond sight to blend with ceaseless skies. I believe I was beyond thought. An instinct of flight had seized me and thrust me forward. Here were tufts of coarse reed where the ground saturates with brown, peat-rich water, spikes of yellow asphodel, pale green leaves of butterwort, Bog cotton cringed before sudden sharp gusts, and strange red-fringed sundew set their traps. Beyond the path, the lurid green and orange mouths of bog. I saw lumbering sheep heave themselves to scatter deftly on cleft feet, clattering on sharp and giddy rocks. And above me, in the deepest silences of height, an eagle screamed. I scrabbled up the intermittent path between bleak rocks and beside stampeding water. Occasional cairns marked other travellers' tracks. And then the mist came, sudden and clogging as sodden cloth, and my feet stumbled and the landscape shrank to the next rock. Light clung to shapeless things, giving them an aura, a nimbus. The mountains vanished, tossed away, weightless, it seemed, in a landscape that no longer had shape or substance, and the cloud gathered, tightening its blindfold. Time slid away in the moments that I paused, searching for landmarks. The path melted. Behind me then, and nearer with every hesitant step I took, and trampling through the hammering rhythm of my heartbeats, shouts and the stamp of boots, the jingle and slide of metal. I turned for a breathless moment, and figures, dull red in the mist, clambering the rocks far behind and alongside the path, their voices calling hoarsely, arms and what seemed to be weapons gesticulating. Suddenly, to my left, a woman beckoning me. Down the steep cleft in the rock, beside the thundering water, where she stood, poised for flight, a baby bound to her breast in a shawl. Her words, whispered hot into my ear as I scrambled to her, were utterly unknown to me, but their meaning, come, come, hide, was as familiar as my own thought. 
She drew me down into the shadow of the rocks, scraping between huge boulders toppled by the ancient force of the river, and I crouched with her, feeling the trembling of our bodies, our strained, conjoined breathing. Her brown hand held mine, and I marked the detail of the veins, the ragged nails, the peat staining of each wrinkle of hand and face, the strong reek of her, fire smoke and terror, and safe between us, the still, sleeping baby, the only warmth in that desolation of clinging mist and dread. I do not know how long we stayed, locked in our shuddering kinship of terror. The mist hid us. Whatever searched for her and pursued me, swept over us and away in a flurry of distant, brutal shouts and trampling boots. We waited until long after the silence returned, and only then slowly dared to climb back to the side of the river. Without a word, only gestures of caution and gratitude that spoke across language, spoke across centuries. And even as I turned to climb back up the ravine, the mist began to lift, whirling and shredding in a gathering wind, and I saw her vanish, ragged and barefoot, slipping silently into the remnants of that shrouding vapour, chilled, shaken, but safe now. In the returning brightness of the afternoon light, I sat on a rock beside the path, slowly seeking to understand. Up that valley, so beautiful in my memory, yet transformed in an instant out of time and recognition, Cumberland's soldiers of the forty-five had come scouring, and her terror had reached and rescued me, her future, my past, meeting in those moments of dread and deliverance. We had both, I wanted to believe, survived, she fleeing into the west with her child, and I had escaped, to begin again to find myself, to carry my new life, warm, vulnerable, safe, as she had carried her baby unhurt through pursuit and fear. I went no further that afternoon. The returning sun gradually warmed me. I ate the food I had brought, drank water, felt strength return and the ache and shaking fade from my legs. I retraced my steps, coming down to the road and through the gate, turning back to the room I had booked for the evening and the promise of food and shelter. But was she wandering perpetually, I wondered, for a moment caught out of my own reality, into hers. Was she still wandering in flight, away from those dreadful pursuing figures, or had her story ended long ago in safety? Had understanding of my story brought her out of the mist, as the dark red stains of the soldiers had sprung from my terrified imagination, like the projections of shadows onto a sheet? I would take her gifts, the ancient kinship, the pricelessness of salvaged life, the courage to seek out new beginnings. I reached my room, and after a meal I booked myself in for tomorrow night. I unpacked and sorted my few possessions, touching each with recognition. And then, and at last, I slept. 
You have been listening to Spots of Time. From the book There is a Season. Read by the author Janet Killeen. And produced by Duncan P.B. For more stories, please subscribe on iTunes or from wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.